writes the two things. One, Father James Martin is in this episode. I got to keep it clean up in this piece. I have to do it all respectable-like. Can't be all cussing up a storm. Two, it's getting harder and harder to come up with ways to tiptoe around the naughtiest word in the language. So I figured I'd just think of some other game to play at the beginning. We do a lot of philosophy talkie here on the show, so I thought, why not just try to count off my 25 favorite philosophers in 10 seconds? Right, so, so here, here we go. Kant. <laughs> See what I did? That's Okay, that was just cheap. in the summer, Ben and I flew to my home in Florida. I couldn't take Ruby, my daughter, along. She's only two, and the flight would have been too difficult for me with both of them. But it was great anyhow. Ben got to take swimming lessons and go diving in the springs and to the beach and see all sorts of animals. I got to take him to Disney and he did a Jedi training. I'm looking at a picture of him right now, the look of deep wonder on his face as the Jedi Master puts his hand on his little shoulder. It's pretty cute. But It was wonderful in another way, and for both of us. One of my guests who we'll be talking to in the new year, philosopher and neuroscientist Alvin Noah, has asserted that anyone who moves to another place, especially another country, suffers disfigurement. It's a form of amputation to remove the extended environment one lives in. He writes, when we transplant ourselves, as immigrants get transplanted, when we move from one town to another, or one country to another. We suffer injury, however subtly or grotesquely or even painlessly. And so we are altered. This should not come as a surprise. Our life is a flow of activity, and it depends on our possession of habits and skills and practical knowledge, whose very actuality in turn implicates our particular niches. No matter how good you are at breathing, you can't breathe underwater, just as you can't swim where there is no water. And no matter how charming you may be, How wonderful a raconteur. If you find yourself in a strange land, where a strange language is spoken, 
You can't tell a good story. That is, you can't be what you are. You yourself are changed. That's obviously true for me, Aaron Gowan, host of this show, A Million Little Gods. The thing is, Ben is supposed to be native to Germany. And he is. He speaks the language fluently. He plays and makes friends. He knows the idiom and he knows the manner of being German. But he knows the idiom and he knows the manner of being American, too. He has two native lands. And for that, he depends on me. It's not easy to do. And it's a relief for me when I can bring him there and let him breathe his other native air, set root for a while in his other native soil. When I see him playing with kids there, the children of my own childhood friends, I see him begin to blossom. Suddenly there are people, other than his old man, who know his jokes, who know his favorite books, who understand his gestures. Peppers. Pickles. Petunias. Then I notice that he doesn't fit in. Not entirely. Not there either. For the opposite of what happens to him in Germany happens to him in America. There are certain ways of being himself he just can't share and can't even make the others there comprehend. He isn't split. It's stranger than that. He exists in two different ways. He's completely German and completely American. Yet, like you said in the first part of this three-part series of episodes, he's just Ben. So how does that work? As I mentioned, this is part two of a three-part series, and it's probably best to listen to that last episode, which was part one of the series, so you get a sense of what we're talking about and what's at stake. To make a long story short, we're trying to figure out what it means to be a self. What makes me, me, and you, you. If you've already listened to part one, you'll know that the answers neuroscience and cognitive science posit for that question are a bit contentious. But I wanted to talk with some practitioners. So while I was in Florida back in August, I I took a trip to the University of Florida to speak with a couple of professors, Neil Rowland and Andreas Kyle, and to tour their cognitive neuroscience research facilities. So, so the sun shines damn near every day in Florida, but not that morning. It poured most of the way to Gainesville, and I was totally drenched when I walked in. Now, you wouldn't expect some of the most advanced research in cognitive psychology to be being conducted in such a nondescript place. The so-called surge area was built in the early 60s to meet the demand for more classrooms at the university as it expanded, and it, and it doesn't look anything like the red brick main campus. So imagine a bunch of white-painted cement bungalows, a little mold and rust stain from the outside on the edge of a pine and cypress wood. It's the sort of place in Florida you'd expect to find homeless people camping. And in fact, it's one of the places Danny Rowling, the Gainesville murderer, liked to camp. Because, you know, Florida. And on the outside, there was this haphazard pile of empty gas canisters and this very disconcerting no-radioactive-waste sign on one of the doors. It looked like an exceptionally disappointing lair for a James Bond villain. But the inside was a different story. 
you can see sort of the setup that we're using. This is a barber's chair. We <laughs> like those because they can be adjusted in height. Oh, yeah. And they are comfortable but not too comfortable. And people associate them with an active kind of, you know, thing. Where yeah. Somebody's working Professor Andreas Kaya. He happens to be from southern Germany, just a coincidence. A uh, reason, because uh, some of the experiments that we run require that um, a certain amount of trials are run, like the same thing or similar thing over and over again. So really, fatigue is, is an issue and boredom is yeah. a gigantic issue. So uh, to collect brain data, you need kind of, you know, to average across many, many time series and by the time they have worked on 200 or sometimes 2000 trials where they do a simple task they are really really fatigued so it helps to have a cozy chair that's not too cozy because otherwise they fall asleep really. okay in a too cozy chair that will happen a lot <laughs> so otherwise i gotta say that uh, i associate uh, haircuts with with getting my ears cut i've had i've had my, oh, wow. my ears sliced at least three times while while sitting in a barber's chair that's i might be set at ill ease by sitting in one of those chairs that was i had a barber actually in daytona he was, I was Say that can't be in Germany <laughs> <laughs> because they'll burn your ears. I went to the Turkish oh, barber yeah, and he did the, the flame thing exactly. for your the eyebrows and or uh, yeah and or uh, the ears yeah. and nose. <laughs> uh, so that was a fantastic experience, but it made me nervous with the open mm. flame everywhere. Professor Kyle has made a name for himself in cognitive science circles by helping us understand some of the brain mechanisms involved in perceiving and paying attention how people extract from the environment those things that are necessary for them to do the job of living a successful life. So how do we extract important things and ignore all the unimportant things? Yeah. Uh, we know that there is, you know, disturbed in many uh, diseases and disorders. So we measure everything that helps us understand that. So the first device he showed me was an infrared high-speed eye tracker. Imagine like a screen that sits at eye level and it's transparent so that you can look through it and you can see another monitor behind it and it measures your eye movement. Samples very highly where you're looking at, but it also samples the diameter of your pupil okay. as you look at something. He works with all sorts of adult subjects, sometimes healthy people, oftentimes psychiatric patients. In a lot of the studies that we do, they see um, natural scenes. So like pictures, photographs of things that may or may not be something that they find interesting to look at or relevant to look at can be ugly scenes like accident scenes. Or it could be natural scenes that are more pleasant, even like wonderful landscapes. Or then in some studies, we're interested in looking at how people perceive social interactions. So there might be very pleasurable interactions, even between naked people. Mm. Or there might be not so pleasurable interactions with people who, you know, have guns or weapons or stuff like that. PTSD patients are, as you might guess, particularly focused on in these studies. How does the background of the person, um, let's say, you know, if... A good example is if you're like an um, Afghanistan veteran, how does that experience shape the way you scan your visual environment and what can we do about anything where that scanning of the environment is a problem for the people? Mm -hmm. So we've had it where many people who came back from, let's say, Iraq or something, they have that thing where they ran into a improvised explosive device and they cannot get rid of that habit of scanning everything for 
signs of threat and danger, even though they know in a sense that they're in a safe place, they keep scanning the environment. We know that that scanning in the environment is like the first step towards having constant anxiety. So we know that when you can get rid of this tendency or disposition towards looking for a threat everywhere, it will actually sort of help you calm down at some point and not be in a constant fearful state. And yet we we praise people who are uh, sensitive to their Mm -hmm. environment, people who are aware of threats. And and I think people of that nature can often be a a benefit to us culturally, uh, people whose fear... Or, or at least sensitivities to fear can mm-hmm. offer us the ability to, to locate mm-hmm. locate danger, mm-hmm. which is a good thing. Mm, that um, would be a good thing. <laughs> it is, though, the case that what you have in mind where people are very aware of their surroundings and are really good in identifying threat, that is a different thing from what I just described where you scan the environment for something that clearly isn't there. Yeah, okay. So the person you had in mind who would make an excellent bodyguard like – they don't exist in the real world in the same way they do in Hollywood movies. But we all know this prototypical bodyguard in Hollywood movies. They spot like something that happens behind them and they <laughs> identify that as a threat to the president. And then they shoot like while looking the other way in the left eye of the person so they can still query them about what was going on. And while those skills don't exist in the real world, they would be great. But when, I, when I'm like traumatized by running into uh, an improvised explosive device and I s- spend the rest of my life scanning the roadside, then that is a problem for me. And it doesn't actually, unfortunately, assist in anything, in any way that is useful for my life. Can I just, I just, I, I want to take a moment to make sure that it goes on record that I was not thinking of whatever personality traits would best serve to protect the president and all of us from the menace of John Malkovich and extensions and tie dye. And I sure as heck wasn't thinking of whichever personality traits would have helped oil the plants of whoever it was trying to take out Whitney Houston. I was thinking more along the lines of attentiveness to fire hazards or animals crossing the road in front of your car. You know, I don't know whether one of the eyes is on on the stove. But, okay, that was glib of me. People who suffer post-traumatic stress are just as psychologically real as I am, and and they suffer. But that's the point I'm trying to get to, the real experience of real human beings. Can cognitive science help us see that real experience happening in the brain? Okay, so this is the control room. So here we record EEG, that's electrical brainwaves. That's very important. We record them from 129 sensors using a cap that is worn like a shower cap. So if you could just imagine taking like 30 iPhone earbuds and stuffing them inside your coat pocket and leaving them there for like 10 seconds and then taking them back out and you have that perfect like sailor knot made of them, but with like 30 of them, that's what he's holding in his hand. If you could shake it a little bit. Okay, thank you. (laughs) Absolutely. So these are very convenient. They are dipped into salt water with a little bit of Dr. Johnson's baby shampoo. The shampoo kind of helps to resolve the little layer of grease that everybody has on the head. Mm. And then the salt makes sure that the little sponges that are in each of those fills with the saline. And then it becomes, you know, conducting of electric currents and come out your brain. And then we uh, have a really powerful amplifier that's back there that amplifies them 10,000 times. And then we can see them on the screen from many, many locations. That's really helpful because the 
brain electric waves are actually a pretty cool measure of neural activity. Everybody knows fMRI that gives you yeah. the colorful pictures. But that is a kind of a measure that is really slow in nature because it reflects the blood flow. The blood mostly. They're measuring oxygen in the blood. Exactly. Okay. You're very good. And this one actually uh, measures mostly your pyramidal cells. That's a technical thing, and I, I'll explain that. But pyramidal cells in your cerebral cortex, that's your gray matter, they are the ones that do the cognitive perception attention tasks. And we can see how they communicate with each other directly through the scalp using these uh, electrodes here wow. in a sense that is completely in real time. So we can sample this at a thousand hertz, which means every millisecond we get a reading of about, you know, the mass activity of what anywhere between 40,000 and 400,000 pyramidal cells do. So it's not as precise. We don't know what a single cell does. We don't know exactly where the signal comes from unless we do a whole lot of additional work. But we know it in real time. In spite of some serious advances in the last few years, this remains the state of technological measurement. EEG, as Professor Kyles just explained, can track brain states with high temporal resolution, whereas fMRI, which, as we mentioned, measures the flow of oxygen in the blood, before that PET, which does something similar but is much more invasive and requires injecting positron-emitting isotopes into the bloodstream and then following the emission of gamma rays caused by the positrons and electrons ramming into each other, can track the location of brain activity with relatively decent accuracy. There have been some combined measurements, that is EEG MRIs. However, there are limitations due to dangers to the patients in using the two systems simultaneously. But even with that, all, all of these methods are so far removed from the phenomena we know we are experiencing as individuals, as, as, as selves. How, how do I get from... to... So we can never, with the methods we have now, establish a completely causal and complete mechanistic link between any brain process that we can pin down and any phenomenological outcome. Mm. But what we can do very well, and that's close to that, actually, mm. is to relate it as specifically as we can to specific behaviors and to other processes that we can see, observe, measure, or have the person report to us. Mm -hmm. And it's best to do all of them. Yeah. So that's what we do. So we measure the eye movements that somebody does. That helps us to see where do they look at. So that is an index of whether they have seen something that is of interest to them because very often they will look at it. Mm. Then we harness the power of statistics because if you see something that you're interested in, you do often look at it, but you do not always look at it. So there is a, an aspect of probability here mm. that we need to harness as well. 
There is also something about how your body responds to things. So we record skin conductance, heart rate, and other indices of how your body thinks these things require engagement of your peripheral stuff because the brain is not in a vacuum. A lot of the brain research pretends like the brain is carried around like in a glass container and it's mm. shown things and then it's taken away to another place again. But really, the brain is carrying us around, and then our body has to do all the hard work. So okay. if something uh, is of interest to us, it's of interest to us because we want to do something with it. We want to eat it. We want to obtain money from it. We want to mate it or something. Mm. It's normally about doing something with it. It's not a purely cognitive, intellectual thing to perceive the world. We perceive the world because we have to survive in it. Mm. And so these perceptual systems are tied to all these things in the body that we can easily measure. So if I show you something that really engages you, your heart rate will change. Of course. And you will start sweating in a way that I can measure, and you will start looking differently around it. So that way we can establish using many, many example situations and scenes, we can establish a firm relationship between what we observe in the brain and what we can see on the person's behavior. Mm. We can ask them, we can observe their behavior, can measure where they look and how their body responds. Okay. And that is going to be a multivariate, so to speak, uh, cluster of information that gets us close to your original question, but it will only approximate it. I... I mean, philosophically, I was always on the side where it's probably not going to ever work <laughs> to reduce everything to a pattern of brain activity. Sure. And not just because it's so incredibly complex, but because the brain doesn't do it by itself. I wish I had a dime. I wish I had me a pretty girl. You not call mine. Don't get trouble in your mind. 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 So at this stage, I don't think it's necessary to pull the standard survey of the mind-body problem. In the last few years, there have been enough essays and popular philosophy books and even, even podcasts, as I mentioned in the last episode, that have gotten you at least from Descartes' second meditation, not earlier, and his cogito argument and his evil demon through idealism and behaviorism and positivism into the 20th and 21st centuries, where we have this functional computing model of the mind. So, so I'm going to leave, leave the survey at that and just get down to the really and truly hard part about trying to identify the mental with the physical, to wit, the what it's like problem. Or another way of saying it is the, 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 the problem of qualia. And to help me explain what qualia are, I thought I'd invite back someone you've heard from before. Hello. All right. Hello. He helped me to do the introduction, content warning for episode two. That was Kevin Gray. You'll remember he, he writes for Paste Magazine about all things beer. And it seemed to me that a specialist in the act of observing one's phenomenal experience of beer would be great for helping me talk about qualia. You're, se you're sequestered in a phone booth. What? Okay. So I am at a place called The Barrel House, and The Barrel House is part bar, part retail shop, but also has a very um, coffee shop feel. Yeah. So when you walk in, it's a bottle shop. You know, you can go and, and get takeout or whatever, uh, carry out beers. But they have uh, 19, no, 19 uh, different tap selections, uh, including they have a couple of wines on tap and a cider on tap. And 
uh, and then uh, 17 different interesting beers. And uh, they have a little foam booth, and I'm actually sequestered in the foam booth, so I'm not uh, disturbing other patrons. And if you if you like open the door, would we hear, suddenly hear like people talking in the background? It's not, so it's I mean, think of it as more of a coffee shop at uh, a vibe in the afternoon. You know, yeah. I work from home, so. Uh, I usually try and schedule, you know, one week, one afternoon a week to come out because I've got some other work from home friends and we just meet here and we just look like total nerds just sitting on our couches, sitting on the couches working on the laptops, you know, but uh, it's a nice kind of way. And, and for, boozing it up? Um, I wouldn't say boozing it up. I would say responsibly enjoying an afternoon pint. Yeah, so you're boozing it up. So anyhow... But, you're living the dream is what you're telling me. This is, you know, <laughs> my God. For a couple hours every Thursday, I live the dream. Yeah. yeah. That's more than many people live the dream, and you get it every week, my friend. All right. That's well, true. That's true. So I, I've brought us back to the topic of drinking beer because I like beer. And then second, I also want to talk about something called qualia. So – when you, I mean, like, you know, the last time we talked about beer in the last episode, I think you described something as having a, a kind of Michigan cherry flavor with a sour note on top of it. And uh, yep. that was that, that uh, brewery Vivant sour beer. And what I was going to ask you was, how do you mean tastes like Michigan cherries? Because it's, if I put a, a cherry in my mouth, I would taste cherries. And if I put something like beer in my mouth, I, I unless it actually has cherry juice in it, I wouldn't say it actu- actually tastes like cherries. And yet, we say it has a hint of cherry to it. What? Uh, uh-oh, there comes place. Uh, I would actually argue that it, that, that, did you hear them in the background? Yeah, but that's okay. The, uh, well, I am downtown. Yeah, or are you, um, is it I like, did, did you just suddenly enter cherry. the prohibition era and now that, now you're about to get arrested? <laughs> right. <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm calling you now from a speakeasy. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, I barricaded the doors. I like your, no, I like I your bow tie. <laughs> in my suspenders. <laughs> yeah. Um, if you put a cherry uh, aside one of these beers and tried it, I would actually argue that you could taste the same flavor in both. Um, you know, beer and food pairing is a pretty big um, topic in the craft beer world. And there are things like uh, cherries, an unusual one, but but pit fruits in general, you can definitely get purely from the malts. Um, chocolate is a really good example of something or coffee. Those are things that exist in beer without having to have coffee or chocolate in the beer. And if you try a piece of chocolate next to that beer, it's the same taste. It's the same flavor. Hmm. You've certainly had a Hefeweizen that had a banana and clove odor to it. I've, I've had Hefeweizen so with banana in it before because they do that here. So I would challenge you to try a Hefeweizen without banana in it and smell those, those same, you know, look for those same, um, those same features. No, I know exactly uh, what you mean. I can, I can detect a, a kind of banana quaff. If that makes sense, like like a sudden nasal, almost nose clearing smell that that you get from a banana. There's a it's it's somewhere between tangy and funk that comes from a banana, mm-hmm. and, and and yeah, and, and a lot of that the uh, the the nose that you're getting that smells like banana. Those are from uh, those are esters that are produced as a byproduct of the yeast, um, and those chemical compounds in those in those esters mimic the chemical compounds in smelling a banana or a clove or, or whatever. And 
Okay, so, I mean, have you ever, because if I go in like ratebeer.com or uh, what's the other the other big one that's, the other uh, big website? Beer Advocate. Yeah, Beer Advocate, or okay. Untapped. Or untapped. Well, I don't even know Untapped. So I go on to, I go on to Untapped apparently or Beer Advocate or Rate Beer and I look at those ratings. I get a lot of different appraisals and, and different statements about what people taste inside. I mean, I do get some similarities and I, I guess if I did an aggregate of everything that people say, I would get... A certain, I could estimate roughly the kinds of flavors people would say are in in a drink. And if I said IPA, I would immediately say grapefruit. That that comes to my mind in in like a pale ale, um, and everyone says that. And I think that has something to do with a particular kind of hop that's in there that has has that flavor. Is it is that true? Right. Yep. Yep. Those would be your your sea hops. Is that the, uh, is or that, there are other hops or citra hops or yes, yeah, it's all yes, that's dependent on the hops. Yeah, and they and they and that's a definite citrus flavor. I know what people mean by citrus, but it's an analogy to me. It's not necessarily the same thing, is it? Um, I don't know. It's a really good question because there are beers that I've had that I could swear there were certain flavors in that there are none. Um, chocolate, like I said, is a really good example, or coffee. Mm. You can get a coffee or a chocolate flavor. And it tastes like chocolate or like coffee, and there's no chocolate or coffee in. Some of those other flavors, the the citrus, the pit fruit is a really good example, the cherries or the plums or whatever, those probably are a bit more analogous. Oh, it tastes like a cherry, not that I don't taste cherry, I taste, you know, a cherry flavor. Yeah. It's a good question. I mean, I think, I guess, about relativity and subjectivity and color, right? But there's also a shared experience. At some point, someone in your childhood pointed to an apple and said, this is red. Yeah. And so you've defined red by that experience. And enough of us have had that same, you know, shared experience and and whatnot. And I think the same is true in tasting a beer. But there's, there's also, I think, a level of what our palates are sensitive to. Um, So I could taste the same beer that you tasted. And you might have a different palate sensitivity than I do. At this point, I have to mention again a name you've already heard a couple of times in previous episodes, Daniel Dennett. He's somebody to be admired, I certainly admire him, for his tenacity, and he's got a robust intellect. I invited him a few months ago to be on the show, but he's on sabbatical and not giving interviews. Perhaps he'll join us next year. I'd like that. But I'm now going to make that a little less likely by being bold and saying that I think he's wrong, and a lot. He regularly works with researchers into artificial intelligence, and he's determined to prove that consciousness is an illusion. Specifically, since they constitute the hard problem of consciousness, he wants to show that what we call qualia, instances of subjective perception or experience, are really just the effects of a system of logical inferences our brains are constantly performing in conjunction with the rest of our organism, helping the whole thing survive in the world. Your qualia, your perceptions, you as a self are just the effects of a mechanism telling itself a story based on predictions it makes about its impending interactions with the stuff and the other mechanisms around it. To help prove this point, Dennett likes to use small thought experiments that he calls intuitive pumps. Here's one of those intuitive pumps about beer that I read to Kevin. 
He says it is familiarly said that beer, for example, is an acquired taste. One gradually trains oneself or just comes to enjoy that flavor. What flavor? The flavor of the first sip? No one could like that flavor. An experienced beer drinker might retort. But beer tastes different to the experienced beer drinker. If beer went on tasting to me the way the first sip tasted, I would never have gone on drinking beer. Or to put the same point another way, if my first sip of beer had tasted to me the same way my most recent sip just tasted, I would have never had to acquire the taste in the first place. I would have loved the thing from the first sip as much as the one I just enjoyed. If we let this speech pass, we must admit that beer is not an acquired taste. No one comes to enjoy the way the first sip tasted. Instead, prolonged beer drinking leads people to experience a taste they enjoy, but precisely their enjoying the taste guarantees that it is not the taste they first experienced. So what he's saying, I mean, you know, in, in, a, in summary, he's saying our experience of equality can't be one thing from, from one moment to the next. That is, he's saying the taste I have the first time can't be the same thing as the taste I have when I really like it. Otherwise, I would have liked it from the get-go. I say that's not true. Well, maybe the, well, what do you say? I, 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 have, I, have, I have two comments about that. One, I think there is an interesting um, idea that as you, you know, have your first beer, your second beer, your third beer, your fourth beer, there are um, experiences that you begin to associate with that beer that may tend you towards some a favorable impression of that taste of that beer, not because you like the flavor of the beer, but because of the things you have, the memories you have tied to it. So that would be my one my one comment. But my second comment would be, I absolutely understand the concept of beer as an acquired taste when all you could get what you know back in the college in my college days was like Miller or Light. That's 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 not a taste that I enjoy now. <laughs> yeah, a taste I had to teach myself to enjoy then. But if some of the beers that I have available to me now were available when I was in college and first trying beer, I'm not sure I would have ever thought of it as an acquired taste. I, uh, some of these I think I probably would have liked immediately right off the bat. Even as a child. I let my children try uh, beer. If I crack something open, I let them try it, and and some of them like it. Uh, you know, Gabe is a really good example. My oldest, yeah, he's not he he's not liked a lot of the ones that you know. And, and I'm not like pouring a you know an ounce or anything. I just let them have a sip. Um, now Gabe has a little bit of social stigma about beer drinking, kind of baked in. He's sort of like I'm a kid. I'm not supposed to be drinking beer, so that sort of weighs <laughs> against him. Yeah, and uh, I thought he just didn't like the flavor. And then um, this is maybe four or five years ago. It was one of my, it was my birthday, and I opened uh, a ten-year-old barley wine, which tastes nothing like a Bud Light or an IPA or a Stout. Uh, and I tried it, and I let him try it as well. And he said, "Wow, Dad, I, I really like this. This is really good." And I thought, "Okay." My theory about tasting beer is that there is a beer taste for everyone. Because the spectrum of beer is such a wide, it, it's so wide that there are, you know, if you like chocolate, I can find a beer for you that has chocolate. If you like lemonade, I can find a beer that has a tartness that you might like. If you like, you know, fruity flavor, there's a beer you might like. Um, if you like, you know, pine and resin, there's a flavor I could find. So um, I like that. What's that, what's that uh, one? Um, some of the some of the IPAs have piney or okay. resiny flavors. True, so yeah. Yeah, some of the West Coast ones. They're, they're actually, that's another flavor that I'm pretty sensitive to that I don't really like. I actually like that piney kind of really thing. Do. Yeah, well, that was that was one I had 
that's a flavor that I would say is actually an interesting example of something that I've had to say, all right, I understand that this is a valued flavor. So I want to explore this flavor and try and understand why other people like this flavor. And so, you know, I, it's not that, that, that actually might be an example of a beer that I've had to learn to appreciate because it's not a flavor that I like, you know, just naturally. But my, so, so I think though his intuition pump, his thought experiment doesn't land with me. If you see what I mean, like, I, I agree with you. There, there's a spectrum of flavors and, and it's, it's so, so wide and there are so many things, but they are just flavors that I have to come to having a relation, a relationship with. It's true of my experience with lots of things, but it doesn't mean that the thing itself changes. It means I change in some way, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, That I agree. I agree with. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and I come to discover it. it's it's kind of like you know when you're when you're driving and you 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 drive around one city a couple of times and you you know you you know one way to go and you know another way to go and then suddenly you drive a middle road that takes you between the two paths and and now you've kind of put your two maps together and suddenly it becomes one map if that makes mm-hmm. sense and suddenly now you have a, a fuller map of the city. I feel like that's how I experience drinking beer when I when I taste it the first time. I I. Ha- or if I read a book the first time for that matter, I'm not a, a familiar with the kind of aesthetic that that, mm-hmm. that writer is writing with. And so I, it, it doesn't strike me as, you know, immediately aesthetically pleasing until I kind of learn what they're doing. And then I kind of right. learn the game yeah. they're playing. And then suddenly now I do experience it as aesthetically yeah. pleasing. But I don't think that the object, I mean, okay, a book is a completely different kind of thing and music is a different thing. But but flavor, qualia in this case, like, like the phenomena I taste, I really do think those are the same. I'm just developing my own relationship with it. And that's my why own subjective that, experience. Why wouldn't that be true of a book or music? I mean, you read well, a book in high school and you have a reaction to it and you read the same book 20 years later with a better understanding of not only the context the book was written in, but also your own life experience. The words in that book are exactly the same. You you very likely could pick up the exact same book you read in high school. And Absolutely, but I wouldn't. Experience. I wouldn't. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. But it, but is it really a qualitative, a qualia experience? Is it a same? Is it a quail? You know what I mean? Is it is it really like a other than its phonic quality? Words strike me well, okay. in that way. So maybe not a book. How about a piece of music? How about a you know a song that you heard? Definitely. You know, a complex and interesting song that you heard in high school that you hear now um, that even, even not even just from a nostalgic standpoint, but a complex, you know, when I was in high school, I discovered John Col John Coltrane yeah. and my relationship to the very same songs I heard in high school are so different now. Same song. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And that I would say is qualia. I think so too. Yeah. I, I agree with you. I mean, music, music's weird though, isn't it? Like, I mean, there are certain types of music that are inferential. That is, I mean, you, they, they're speaking to you as well as playing with your emotions and, and just being sonic experiences. Couldn't, couldn't beer be the, couldn't you argue that beer is the same in that if you're arguing that music speaks to you at certain times because you are open to that particular experience, then think about um, a light lager, a well-made or a pilsner, something crisp and light. Yeah. It's delicious right after you're mowing the lawn. Oh, God, it's yeah. not the beer you want in the middle of February. True. And Although- so doesn't your relationship with that change not only with your life experience, but also the immediate context 
Yeah. In, you know, in what you're drinking, which I would say is exactly the same as a book. You just go through a, or a, a music, you go through a bad breakup and you listen to a certain song, it's going to resonate with you differently than it would when you were in the middle of a happy relationship. Okay, that's true. Totally true. Suddenly things that seem trite become meaningful. Oh, yeah. Okay, let's, let's open beers. What do you got? Like I said, I think Dennett is all wrong. Even if you can prove that qualia are just the effects of predictive inferences being made by the program running a person's brain, it doesn't ever get to the subjective experience of qualia. It never locates the what it's likeness. Because that's absurd. Even if I concede the point to Dennett, and in some way I do, that my subjective enjoyment of a pilsner after mowing the lawn is dependent on all sorts of factors inside me and in my context doesn't take away the experience. How I am and what I am is that subjective experience, whatever it's influenced or caused by. No matter what, the subject remains. So if, as Galen Strassen said in our last episode, matter taken to mean discrete pieces of stuff that interact with each other and cause things to happen can never be consciousness, because consciousness is constitutionally different from that, then how do we explain that humans and maybe even other animals being clearly made of matter also seem to be conscious. What gives? Well, I think that the same false assumption lies behind that. All that. Galen Strassen. Um, I mean, one way to put it is like, like this. It's orthodoxy that, that matter is just energy. It's orthodoxy now that it's all just energy. Um, well, that's already a large step away from some sort of clunky view of what the physical is. So if you were paying close attention to the last episode, you'll have noticed that we sort of intimated at this view when Professor Strawson said that consciousness is not a, a great deal less than we've thought, but rather matter is a great deal more than we've thought. The old dichotomy about consciousness was between dualism and materialism. The materialist believed that there is one substance in existence, matter, while the dualists believe that there is matter and there is mind or psyche, and they interact perhaps but are distinct. I think I'd better give credit to another philosopher, David Chalmers, for on several occasions recently drawing a new distinction. In his dichotomy, everyone believes in nature. But on the one hand, you have the traditional materialist who still believes that everything must be reduced to pieces of matter interacting with each other. While on the other hand, you have those who believe that consciousness is primitive. Consciousness is part of the physical system at its most basic level. Panpsychism. One of the things to do at this point is to think about what we all know from, as it were, just as lay science. So when people try and make that, what, what you just said, vivid, they say, well, here's the soggy, gunky brain. How could that? And it's all you know, sort of squishy and gray, pinko gray and 
yeah. you know, you can, if it's a sheep's brain, you can chop it up and fry it with garlic and it tastes delicious. They say, it's just meat. The brain is just meat. This is true. But what does lay science tell us about that we have in this case? Well, it tells us that we have an inconceivably insubstantial thing, a network of shimmering, flickering energy patterns. Uh, and you know the standard, the standard way of conveying how really the physical is almost completely empty space. Except that you shouldn't say that because it's not empty space, it's the quantum vacuum. Do you know the, the analogy that says, well, if the nucleus was a pinhead, then the nearest electron would be 100 meters away. Mm. So, this is, so what we've got in the brain is just this sort of this skein, this incredibly sort of thin net of electrical connections. And it's not just when you look at the brain that you find that. If you look at a stone, you find that. When you look at, that's all it is. Matter is inconceivably insubstantial. It's just a, a kind of net of shimmering energy. When you look at the brain, uh, it's, it's far, far more complicated. It's, it's already as insubstantial as the stone, but it's, there's all these other layers of organization and shimmering interconnectivities. So at the very least, by this time, we're some way away from the intuitive picture of an impossible clash, wouldn't you say? We've got this extraordinarily insubstantial thing. And now we're told that there are consciousness properties there too. Why not? Who's to say why not? We think we have to get away from you know, stubbing our toes on tables and things. And thinking, oh, that's what matter is. Bang. After all, the hardness of matter is just electric charge. Electric charge itself is something inconceivably insubstantial. So that's step one. And it's a quite a big step. And you, I think that if you want to do philosophy properly, you have to really think about that. Russell is very good about how we're just trapped in bad imaginative pictures of things. And they won't go away. Uh, they'll come back tomorrow, even if you manage to shake them off today. You really have to think it through and dwell on it. So I just completely reject the picture of how could consciousness be as it were, inhabit or be, in, be a form of the physical. And the physical is almost is already inconceivably unlike what we thought it was 300 years ago. The standard view of, of people who, want, who think everything is physical and believe in consciousness is that it Consciousness arose by some remarkable arrangement of completely non-conscious stuff. Mm. And there's all this non-conscious stuff, and then you put it together in a certain way in brains, and, and hey presto, there is consciousness. But the trouble with that view is that it requires what I call radical emergence, or some people call it spooky emergence. And the challenge is, if you put stuff that is in itself entirely non-conscious together, just lots of, in just spatio-temporal ways, how could something as utterly different as consciousness arise from that? And I agree with that intuition, and that's why I think that consciousness was already there, and that's what evolution found, and just like it, evolution worked to, to produce these very adapted, adaptive physical forms that we have, Evolution also 
found consciousness and worked it up into very adapted or adaptive um, sensory modalities, so vision, hearing, and all the things that we had. They were, they're just evolved forms of consciousness that already existed, just as our bodies are evolved forms of shapes that already existed. In a sort of platonic sort of way, or, or well, <laughs> how do we mean? Oh, no, I didn't mean for. I didn't mean. For, <laughs> I mean, the very first, very first animal had a had a body, had a shape. True. And then that that is what has been progressively developed by evolution. So too, I would say, the very first organism had consciousness, and that was developed. And and again, there's an irony here because it's a very powerful principle of naturalism that things should be intelligible. You can't, it's magic. You can't have magic in science. And it would be magic if something like consciousness emerged from the utterly wholly non-conscious. Nonetheless, it feels a little magical to explain that consciousness is, is there and... Already there. Already there. Yeah, that, that feels magical somehow, doesn't There's it? There's nothing... Well, that's just... I mean, I could say prejudice... It's, there is just, we have no grounds for that. It's purely irrational. Yeah, I, I, I understand what you mean. Theoretically, you know, it's a bit like, do you know, before you can, do you know the, the, the Monty Hall problem? The, uh, the let's make a deal game with the three doors and yes. uh, the, the mathematical uh, problem. It's like that. And it's a bit like that. I see what you mean. Yeah, the, the, it, it's so, it, it feels, it, I completely understand the rationality of what you're saying. And yet, nonetheless, I can't escape this, this, this feeling intuition. It takes time. I mean, I, it threw my life out of, completely out of whack for two weeks when I really got it. You know, I think this is part of what doing philosophy requires. I was born to love no one No one to love me only the wind in the long green grass The frost in a broken tree I was made to love magic All its wonder to know But you all lost that magic Many, many, many years ago Professor Strassen got into a sort of epistolary brawl with Daniel Dennett and some others back in February after he wrote a review in the Times Literary Supplement of a play by Tom Stopper dealing with the mind-body problem. And he alluded to the panpsychist view there. The back and forth is fun to read. I like how all the letters start with sir, comma, n dash. For what it's worth, I don't know if I'm a panpsychist. I do know that I completely side with Professor Strassen in his rejection of radical or spooky emergence. I agree that it's logically unsound, and I find it difficult to swallow on a personal level, too. I was just reading one of those ubiquitous articles today on how certain activities can cause you to be desensitized to dopamine rewards, causing less blood to flow to your prefrontal cortex, which is responsible for executive control. I have no doubt that there is some truth to that, but... It's a huge explanatory leap from blood flow to hormonal correlation to neural activity to mental phenomena to motivation for behavior. 
no one can explain to me how my mind, my, my subjective self, how my qualia emerge from my physical brain. Much less can anyone explain how excessive hormones affect desensitization and change my behavior. Nevertheless, I do behave in ways mysterious to myself, and I would love to know why. Remember when I said that my son Ben exists simultaneously but exclusively as a German and as an American? Well, sometimes I seem to myself to be more than one person. I can be a patient saint and I can be a bully. So which one is the real me? Is it the philosophical one speaking to you now? The self-aware me? Am I not myself at other times? That can't be true. So I asked Father James Martin, author and editor-at-large of the Jesuit magazine America, about this. I'll let him have the last word for this episode, but he and Professor Strassen will be back for the final episode in this series. This afternoon, my estranged wife brought my children to me, and um, normally I'm, you know, I've been very happy and, and happy-go-lucky, and things have been perfectly fine for me, but she came in and dropped the kids off and then complained that I had been away, and as soon as that happened, then, then suddenly my my personality changed. It was like getting sick. That is, I, I noticed that I was perturbed with her and this coldness came upon me. And I don't really, I mean, I have a deep sense of, of experiencing the world as a self, but I, I also find myself occasionally not behaving, even observing myself change in ways that are mysterious to me. And can you know, I can get neurological answers to that. I can get philosophical answers to that. Nonetheless, it's not, it's always cold comfort. It's not very appealing because in the end, I want to know there is a singular me somehow there and, and, and the self that I am, uh, I, I don't want to uh, become cold to the woman I married, to, who I still love in some ways, you know, I, I, I still have love for. And, and that's true of, any, of anything. I, don't, I want to know why, why, does a, why does a person suddenly, from a theological perspective from you, why does a person suddenly not recognize himself or herself even in the middle, in the moment, one can see oneself doing something and say, that's not me or, or that is me in some way, but I'm almost separable. I can see myself in two different ways. I've some, somehow bifurcated. What do you say about that? Well, um, it's important to understand that there are lots of forces acting on us, and we have choices. Uh, from a theological point of view, there's always going to be a war uh, between, let's say, uh, God's voice and other voices, basically. St. Paul, I think, in his letter to the Romans says, why do I not do the good that I want to do, but the bad that I don't want to do? So, you know, these are, these are age-old questions. And theologically, you're, you know, obviously... You're a human being, so if someone punches you in the face, you're going to feel anger, you know, or frustration or fear, and and that may feel like it's overtaking you. That's you know, that's our it's a sort of flight or fight response. I mean, that's very primitive, but you have a choice, you know, how to react. Um, do you punch the guy in the face or girl? You know, they punch you, uh, or do you turn the other cheek? Do you walk away? Do you try to negotiate with that person? So I, I understand what you're saying. It feels as if it's a different self. I think, though, that the theological uh, view would be that it is the same self, you know, under different forces, and that self has choices um, that, you know, that he can make. That's not to say that we need to be, you know, unfeeling automatons, but just that, uh, you know, the emotions can be really overwhelming at times, which can lead to this feeling of, uh, you know, not being yourself. I think it's that that overwhelming emotion. But just bear who is in mind, a true friend, hard to find. 
Don't you mind people grinning in your feet. You know your mother will talk about you. As I say, Father Martin and Professor Strassen will be back for our last episode of the year, which should release just before Christmas. A Million Little Gods is produced by me, Aaron Gowan, with help from Chris Lewis, Nick McDonald, and Todd Herrick. Our theme song is by Nick's band, Recycled. If you enjoyed our show, I'd like to ask you to do us a favor. Tell 20 people you know in real life about it, and share a link to our show with people you know on Facebook and Twitter. Speaking of which, you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash a million little gods. We'd love to hear your thoughts about this episode, so start a conversation there. Our Twitter handle is at AMLG Podcast, and our website is a million little gods.com. Happy holidays, everyone. Don't you mind people grinning in your feet?